Um, if we haven't met, my name is Matthew. I'm the associate pastor here. I'm very glad you're here today as we look at God's Word together. Um, let me just put these things down. Um, we, as always, as we come to God's Word together, stand in need of God's help and His grace uh, constantly. So let's uh, ask for that now before we start. Loving Father, we want to thank you for your word to us today in the book of Isaiah. Please help us to understand it. Please change our lives by it. Please uh, cause it to have the effect in our lives that it needs to. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, yes, as, as uh, Jeff mentioned, it's Palm Sunday. It's a really, uh, it's, it's a fitting passage for Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday, if you don't know, is uh, it's it's the the week before Easter. Um, it's because uh, we have traditional date for Easter about a week earlier is when Jesus came into uh, to Jerusalem um, on a donkey and he was hailed as the uh, the King of the Jews who was going to bring in the kingdom of God and that sort of thing. A week later, of course, those same people, many of them, would be yelling, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" Um, so don't make too much of that. But we are remembering Palm Sunday, the Lord Jesus' faithfulness to the cross, which is what Easter is all about, and we can thank him for his faithfulness for us. And it's, it's fitting because today's passage is about one of uh, Jesus' descendants called Hezekiah. Uh, he's king of Israel, he's, you call him Christ Messiah, I mean Christ just means king of Israel, he's Messiah Hezekiah, um, the descendant of David. And what we're going to look at today is a day where Hezekiah was faithful to God. Uh, in a way that is fitting for his lineage. And unfortunately, like many of uh, his family line wasn't like that. Uh, anyway, um, here's what I want to talk to you about today. If you've well, you got your Bible there, please leave it open to Isaiah 36. That, I think you'll find that quite useful. Um, here's what I want to talk to you about today. Um, I want to say, the experience of living as a Christian in Australia, in Australia, in this place very, very easily distorts your entire understanding of what Christianity is all about. Our experience of what it ought to be about. It just living in this place just warps our understanding of Christianity so easily. That's what we're going to talk about today. So the problem is the expectations we have for our faith, a lot of the expectations we have for our faith are actually expectations that have been fed to us by our society, by Australia, because we've grown up here, we've been shaped by the society we're in. So let me tell you a, a story, and, and I'll show you what I mean. I just made up story, but it's true to life. Uh, let's talk about Johnny. Johnny is an average, hard-working Australian guy. He's uh, got a wife, he's got two kids, he's got a decent job, and he enjoys footy. Uh, for some reason, he's a Rabbitohs fan. I don't know why, but let's go with that. Johnny's a typical educated Australian guy. Uh, he's sort of middle class. He cares about the standard things that Australians like him care about. So here's the things that Johnny cares about. Stuff I care about from Johnny. He cares about the best education and opportunity for his kids. He's working hard that they will get into a good school and that no good opportunity in, in life will be uh, pre- prevented to them. He wants them to have the best they can have in life. He wants to have a nice house for his family, so he works hard for it. He wants a career that is satisfying and he wants to find that wonderful elusive thing called work-life balance. Uh, You know, he thinks about that a fair bit and he's always after it and he's he's thinking about that and working at that. Uh, He wants quality holidays and he wants leisure time. He wants family holidays that are satisfying and enjoyable for his kids. Maybe his kids get to experience a bit of the world and that sort of thing. He wants good health, of course, and he wants good health that will last him to retirement. And finally, he wants all of that whilst living with less stress. 
The reason he has that last point on his list, incidentally, is because of the things on the list above it, isn't it? Because if you work your butt off to get all those things, you're going to be stressed. Let me tell you, you will be stressed. If you, you can't live for those things and not be stressed. It's the reason our society, largely, is very, very stressed. Now, Johnny cares about those things. Then one, one day, Johnny, praise God, becomes a Christian. He recognises that Jesus died on the cross for his sins. He recognises he's a sinner, he's in desperate need of God's forgiveness and he accepts Jesus, he gets genuinely converted. And so he becomes a Christian, he starts going to church uh, and uh, he's, he's really a Christian. Here's the problem though. Johnny basically cares about the same stuff that he cared about before he became a Christian. You could go through the list again. Uh, th- those are the things that he's kind of living for, that he thinks is important. He's living by the script that Australian society has told him, live this way. The difference is, now he knows the answer to his script, the stuff I care about. The answer is Jesus. Are you with me? I'm a Christian now. The answer is Jesus. The answer to all my problems is Jesus. So now he prays for God to get these things for him. He begins to act like it's pretty much God's job to secure this kind of lifestyle for Christians who ask for it. After all, he thinks, aren't I adopted into God's family? I mean, God's son died for my sins. Surely he'll use his power to get me the things in life that make for the good life. Do you know what I mean? That make for a decent, normal, Australian way of living. It's a good life that I want. It's not over the top. I just want normal things that normal people want. Surely God will help me get that. And he thinks, well, sure, I'm working hard, but God's on my side now, so my marriage won't suffer, even though I don't relate to my wife as often as I should now. God's protecting my marriage. God's protecting my household. I hope you can see what's happened. Johnny has become a Christian, but his head, his priorities haven't become Christian. (laughs) He thinks life is still about his agenda. He's still living off a script that Australian society has told him is how life is supposed to be lived, and he thinks it's God's job to get on board with his agenda to make this stuff happen. And he hasn't learnt yet that God actually wants to scrub his agenda. The Lord Jesus wants to scrub his agenda and replace it gradually day by day, with God-centred, kingdom-centred agenda instead. I hope you realise, if you've been a Christian for a long time, this isn't just a danger for new Christians, is it? Uh, This isn't a danger for new Christians, this is a danger for all Christians. Australia is a place that distorts our understanding of the Christian faith. You could say the problem like this, Johnny thinks Jesus is the solution for all his problems. What Johnny needs to recognise is that Jesus is the problem for all his solutions. Let me say it again. Johnny thinks that Jesus is the solution for all his problems. What Johnny needs to recognise, and by God's grace what he'll learn, is that Jesus is the problem for all his solutions. This is his solution. This is life. This is what I need. God, get on board with it. Jesus is going to shake that up and change it. And so he goes to church and he hears God's word and he hears the words of Jesus... As we hear the words of Jesus, week by week, one of two things happen. We hear God's truth and we are uncomfortable and we change gradually by it and get on board with God's agenda and painfully rub things out off our agenda, the things that we're supposed to care about. Australia tells us that, but Jesus isn't on about that, so I'll painfully scrub that off. Either that, or you start learning the absolutely deadly habit of resisting God's word. You start your eyes glaze over when, when things Jesus says that are challenging to you. You, you just don't want to listen to them anymore and, and, and you think, no, it's normal life. That's just kind of a bit over the top. And you, this agenda that Australia gives us for how life is supposed to be takes over and hardens us to God's work. This is a big deal, folks. 
Now, part of the problem, though, is lack of imagination. Um, Johnny, check this here. Johnny can't even imagine life different than that because he's never seen it, and that's fair enough. Um, this is normal life, and we get angry, and life doesn't look much like the things on the screen there. Um, but if we lived in different times and places as Christians, we wouldn't even dream of thinking that life could look like this. We, we just this is we, we can't we, we can't imagine different than this. Many of us. The reason is because this is how we grew up. This is the society expectations everybody has. This is how life is lived. Um, let me tell you about this book uh, to give you another perspective. Um, the book is called The Insanity of God, which sounds like a rather blasphemous title, doesn't it? The guy who wrote it is Christian. Uh, the name says it's by Nick Ripkin. Uh, Nick Ripkin is not his name. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know the author. The editor of the book knows the author. The reason his real name isn't there is because he spent uh, the best part of three decades uh, working with Christians uh, in countries where persecution is the normal Christian life. If you speak up for Jesus, you'll probably die. That's normal in the places he's been. And so he has a fake name, and in the book, the fake names are the people he interviews because it would be dangerous to publish their names. Um, so this book is about... Uh, he interviews Christians from 72 different countries over the course of 12 years. That's a lot of people, right? And gets their perspective on the Christian life. And man, this is a, just an astonishing book for people who live in Australia. Um, I, I haven't read it all, uh, but he's made two big points that have stuck with me. Let me tell you two things just that have stuck with me uh, from the book. He says... I have never encountered a mature believer living in persecution who asked us to pray that their persecution would cease. Let me say it again. I have never encountered a mature believer living in persecution who asked us to pray that their persecution would cease. Instead, he says, you know what they pray for? He says, he gets us to pray that they will be obedient and faithful through the suffering and through the persecution. He just hasn't met people, mature Christian believers, in all his experience, who pray that the persecution would end. What they care about is that they would be faithful to the end to Jesus. My goodness. <laughs> Think about Johnny's agenda. With his agenda in mind, he'd be tempted to say, if any of those things fall over, he doubts God. Contrast that with Stoyan. Uh, Stoyan is a pastor's son who recalled his father's final words. His father's final words, the Stoyan heard, was, If I am in prison and I hear that my wife and my children have been hung to death rather than deny Jesus, I will be the most proud man in that prison. Let's not pretend we can relate to that, perhaps. (laughs) This is a different world. This is a different experience of life that we're talking about. Makes you doubt what normal Christianity is about, perhaps. He hasn't met mature believers who pray for persecution to cease. They want to be faithful. Here's the second thing that has stuck with me. We often, uh, in Australia, we thank God rightly for the freedom we have to meet and worship God in our country and to speak uh, about Jesus and not be put in jail for it, right? And that's a good thing. We should be thankful for that. Um, However, Ripkin uh, has interviewed a lot of people uh, and he's basically asked a lot of people, don't you want to have freedom in your country to speak about Jesus? Man, what their response has been in fairly accusatory tones, I think. Don't you want to have freedom to preach the gospel? To which they've essentially said, what are you talking about? Everyone has freedom to speak the gospel. There is nothing stopping you opening your mouth and speaking about Jesus. The only thing that differs are the consequences in the country that you're in. That's the only difference. 
See, in our society, we're likely to equate laws outlawing Christianity with lack of freedom to speak about Jesus, but his interviewees who are actually being persecuted think that that's nonsense. Everyone has freedom to follow Jesus and to speak about Jesus. It's just a question of what the consequences will be when we do so. Now, I know you're ready to go home now, right? Like, (laughs) gosh. Here's the point of the book. Perhaps we can't relate to all of that, but here's the point of the book. What we call insanity, the insanity of God perhaps, is actually normal everyday Christianity for a great many people. A great many people. As you read the Bible, it becomes very clearly that real insanity is treating Christianity like it's about these things. Like it's the things on that list. Uh, Jesus should get on board with the pursuit of my career mortgage and getting my kids the best education. Those are the things the Lord Jesus wants to correct in our life. Now, today we're looking at the kind of believers facing things that are more like the things that Nick Ripkin talked about than what we experience day by day. The year is 701 BC. Here is a map of part of the world we're in. This is the kingdom of Judah down in the, the south there. There's, the, there's Jerusalem. Uh, north of Jer- Judah is the kingdom of Israel. Uh, I'm not putting that on the map because it basically doesn't exist anymore. 701 BC, numbers run backwards, right? So it's 722 BC, it's 21 years beforehand. Yep. Um, And so that's when um, the Assyrian Empire captured Samaria, capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and basically it ceased to exist as a kind of a political nation thing. Um, Now Assyria's back with a vengeance. Uh, Here is Sennacherib with an astonishingly large army, um, and he is coming down south towards Jerusalem. What happens next is pretty straightforward. Have you got your book, uh, Isaiah 36, open? Uh, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, uh, this is the army that's conquered this part of the world for decades. Chapter 36, verse 1. Well, it was very straightforward what happened. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. There you go. There's, there's, there's one verse. That's what happened. What happened is he went down there and now he's in the south of Jerusalem, sort of working his way around to the main prize, the capital, Jerusalem. There were, and there would have been, lots of faithful Israelites in those towns who were captured or were mercilessly killed. I'm sure some of them told themselves, uh, God would never allow this to happen. Uh, however, it did happen. How do I know they would be saying that? Because in the book of Jeremiah, that's what they are saying. But it did happen. And we have, uh, actually, interestingly enough, we have Sennacherib's account of what happened, the king of Assyria. This is a thing called the Taylor Prism. It's just the guy that found it, I think. And there's a whole lot of writing, and most of that writing's about how he came down and captured these towns in in, in Judah. Uh, You you can't read it. What is it? Akkadian, I think. I think it's Akkadian. Anyway, uh, (laughs) which I can't read. Don't worry. I recognize the script, but uh, moving on. Might not be. It's very small. Um, In Sennacherib's annals of the event, he claims he captured 200,000 people just over and 46 towns. And his final prize, which he thought was something worth boasting about, was that he finally captured Lachish, southwest of Jerusalem. That's... um, uh, Israel's last line of defence. Um, he thought it was such a big deal, he uh, made some murals about it. He said, let's, let's go and celebrate this thing. And these are the murals that he made about how he captured Lachish, which is the main defensive fort in, um, in Judah at the time. And where else would it be but the British Museum? Um, there he is, capturing Lachish and killing Israelites. 
Um, this is, uh, there's the inscription, that you'd see the text there, it doesn't look like text to us, but this is what the inscription says, Sennacherib king, uh, the mighty king, king of the country of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment before the city of Lachish, I give permission for its slaughter. He sounds like a delightful, delightful man. Um, but he thought it was a big deal, and so he made these murals about it. You notice how the Bible's recording real history, by the way? It's just worth pointing this out occasionally. It's not just stories. There's actually stuff from other sides as well. Um, What this means, though, is that we're Israelites in those places who called on God, and at that point, God appointed it to them to die, who didn't protect them that day. He let them be persecuted and die. Now, I've had some questions this week, and I I think some other life groups talked about it as well, about... um, faith being tested to its limits. Um, and one passage that's often brought up, and it's an important passage to remember, is 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13, uh, that will not be tested beyond what we can bear. Here, good, I've got it on the screen. Let me read this to you. Um, think about what this means. We have to be really careful we understand what this means. It says, so if you think you're standing firm, Christian people, um, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Hear the promise? Make sure we hear it right, though. He isn't saying, I couldn't bear to lose my house, therefore I won't. God will stop me that happening. He's saying you'll be able to endure it. Endure it. What does that mean? God is in the business, friends, of getting his people into his kingdom, holding on to his promises by faith. God's promise to you, as you hold on to him, is that he will never let you be put in a situation where your faith will be broken such that you do not enter the kingdom of God. Trust in him for that. He will offer you a way out such that you'll be able to endure it. And the way out may not be a way out in the sense of you get to escape the situation. Let me say it like this to get really blunt. Uh, The fact is, it's just a fact, somewhere in the world right now there is a Christian person being tortured for their faith. That is just statistically proven. Uh, Probably lots. Um, Is the reason they are being tested at this moment, and I am not, because they can take it and I can't? The answer is no. God will hold on to them as he'll hold on to me. The reason they're being tested that way is because of the time and place they live in. The Israelites of Judah who were faithful still suffered at the hands of Assyria, many of them. That's just when and where they lived. But those who trusted God's promises, God held on to and brought them into his kingdom. It's very important we don't get this thing wrong and think, oh, I couldn't endure that, therefore that won't happen. I couldn't endure this kind of hardship, therefore that won't happen. It's not, it doesn't work that way. It's about getting into God's kingdom. We have this word endure. I mean, some church has this value. We talk about being an enduring church. The good news is, Us continuing to trust in Jesus until we get to his kingdom isn't just our work. It's God's work. He's there in the background working in us and through us and those around us to see that we get there and to see that his people in every generation get there. So God was at work in the background here of the terrible things that happened. Now, come to chapter 36, verse 2. Sets up the scene here. Um, Chapter 36, verse 2, and it says... 
then, the, uh, then the king of Syria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish, the place I just told you about, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, uh, son of uh, Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander of Assyria comes to this aqueduct. Now, if you're reading the book of Isaiah really, really, really carefully, um, you might remember something about that aqueduct. Um, You won't, though, so that's fine. Um, Chapter 7, something important happened to you. In chapter 7, King Ahaz, uh, Hezekiah's father, the present king's father, was uh, met the prophet Isaiah uh, and was told by Isaiah, trust God in the face of, in his day, another invading army, trust God and God will see you through this. At the same aqueduct, it's like history is repeating itself. This next stage is going to happen here. So it's, it's, it's basically inviting a comparison. King Ahaz failed here. King Ahaz didn't trust God. Uh, king Hezekiah, his son, what will he do now that he's king of Judah? Let me say it a couple of times uh, so you kind of get the point. Um, Isaiah the prophet had tried to guide King Ahaz of Judah to trust and follow God, but Ahaz rejected God's ways and trusted the empire that would enslave his people instead. Now, years later, an aging Isaiah is advising Ahaz's son Hezekiah and calling him to be faithful in God's ways in the wake of the mess his father caused. Now, let me say it again in a way you'll remember. With the screen, if it comes up. Isaiah the prophet had tried to guide young Ahaz of Judah to trust and follow God, but Ahaz rejected God's ways and trusted the empire that would enslave his people instead. Now, years later, an aging Isaiah is advising Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, and calling him to be faithful to God's ways in the wake of the mess his father caused. And whilst we're at it, just as uh, Luke Skywalker seems to have inherited his father's whinginess, Hezekiah seems to have inherited his father's whinginess too. So there's more correlation than just that. Does that help you get a sense of what's going on? So history's repeating itself. The next generation has a chance again. There's a new hope. Um, uh, Anyway. A large army surrounds Jerusalem. This is real intimidating. The field commander of Assyria Assyria approaches to meet uh, Hezekiah's three diplomatic representatives. Um, This field commander is a really capable man. Oh, gosh. Like, I'm reading what he said. I'm going, this guy is good. He knows what he's doing. Uh, He's very intelligent, he's very good at diplomacy, and he is very good at engaging in kind of psychological taunting, uh, where appropriate, to to get what he wants. Um, Let's just read through what he says here. um, Oh, sorry, the the first bit there, he kind of lays on the table what the issues are. Have a look at verse 4. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, the king, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? Now, straight off, he's laid the issues on the table. What does it sound like, this this grand claim he makes? Uh, This is what the great king, the king of Syria, says. Thus says the great king. What does that sound like? It sounds like, yeah, he's an alternative God, which is how he's presenting himself. Thus says the Lord, that's the way Israel adhere it, the great king in, uh, in Jerusalem, God, Here's what the alternative great king, the king of Assyria, says. You see how there's... This is what's going on. It's king of Assyria versus the God of Israel. Who's going to win? And he asks a really insightful question. It's the question that... 
it, it's the big questions going on in the whole section, and that Hezekiah has to answer really clearly. Here's the question: On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You got to picture it there. This this marshal, uh, commander, whatever he is, um, is, is standing there with a world conquering army behind him. Literally, it just conquered everything um, behind him, and he says, "You want confidence that you'll survive it today? Who are you going to trust in for that?" It's a question throughout Isaiah, it's a question for us every day, and it becomes more in your face at different times in life, I think. The Assyrian commander is only too off, uh, eager to give them an alternative to trust in than God on that day. And so he gets stuck into it. Uh, let me read through it, I'll kind of comment things on the way. Um, from verse 5, here's what he says, very, very shrewd man. He says, You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you're depending on Egypt, that splintering reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. Most likely ally? Egypt. We got them covered. Uh, but incidentally, what do you think happens if you lean on a splintery staff? S- sounds painful, doesn't it? Moving on. <laughs> uh, moving on. Um, from verse uh, 7. Um, No, forget about Egypt. Next reason. But if you say to me, we're depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar, as in the one in Jerusalem? Now, this is real clever. You see, there will be lots of Israelites listening whose faith is not strong, and quite frankly, if they had the choice, they would worship God through idols. King Hezekiah being the good king he was, got rid of false idols because God hated them and commanded them not to have them. But now there's this guy just sowing this seed of doubt. Maybe that rich, vibrant expression of worshipping God we had with, with, with idols and that kind of thing, maybe that's what actually was protecting us. And Hezekiah got rid of all that stuff. And so those who are a bit weaker in their faith at this point are feeling even more vulnerable. Come down to verse 8. He says, Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Basically what he says is, look, look, guys, this isn't fair. I'll tell you what. Um, I'll give you 2,000 horses, right? Um, we, we have a big army. You should have a big army too. I'll give you 2,000 horses. You just have to supply the, the 2,000 riders. Oh, wait, you don't have 2,000 riders. That's a pity. Um, what are we going to do? Maybe we'll just send some of the young blokes in to fight you for training instead. Maybe that'll make... You see what's going on? It's demoralising what he's saying to them. And then there's the real kicker in verse 10. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord, without your God, Yahweh? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Your God sent me. Here's something you might not realise. He ain't lying. Not completely. Isaiah chapter 10 speaks about Assyria being the rod of God's anger that he'll use to punish his people for their idolatry. If Israel knows that, I don't know if this, this commander would know that, but that, that's the kick in the guts. That's out, that's KO, that's, it's all over. Presumably that means God is going to let this guy destroy Jerusalem. Now, the three representatives of Israel say, um, 
this is, this is really impolite. Um, basically, the, the international language of diplomacy at the time is Aramaic. We're, we're, we're respectable men. Um, let's speak in Aramaic so that we, we're speaking international diplomacy language. And also, we don't want to hear the, the Hebrew Israelite people on the walls to hear what we're saying. Can we just speak Aramaic, please? And uh, he says, no, I want all of them to hear it. Have a look what he says in verse 12. It's just horrible. Uh, the commander replied, was it only to your master and, that my, uh, and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own ex- excrement and drink their own urine? Well, that's lovely. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew. Here he's yelling to the people on the wall. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city uh, will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And so he goes on and on along that kind of vein. Kind of a mantra throughout it over and over again is, don't let Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, faithful Hezekiah, deceive you into thinking your God's got anything in front of us, before us. We're going to take you and there's nothing you can do about it. Then in verse 16, he makes an offer that any self-respecting Israelite will understand. Have a look at verse 16. He says, Do not listen to Hezekiah. Still yelling, I'm not going to do it though. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. What's that sound like? Eden? Yeah? Sorry? Canaan. Yeah, it sounds like the promised land. Hey, I've got another promised land for you. And it's much like this. It's probably better, actually. Friends, all through, um, it's got the kind of Garden of Eden language in there as well. Um, It's kind of a combination of the two images. All through the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah has been saying to Israel, trust in your God and he will give you a glorious future. It will be like a new promised land. It will be like a new Garden of Eden. You can't even imagine it. It will be awesome. Just trust in me for it. The Assyrian comes along and says, yeah, new Eden, new promised land, we can give you that. Come out and we'll give it to you because your God actually can't. Your God can't fulfill his promises, but the king of Assyria can. And you see what he's doing? He's trying to make the people that would enslave them sound like they're actually their saviors. We're not enslaving you. We're going to save you. We're going to relocate you to a better place. Friends, this is exactly how Satan works. This is what the most clever temptation of the evil one looks like. It's to offer an alternative to what God really promises that seems easier. And it seems more sensible to think it'll actually come off. The field commander of Assyria made an offer and he said, let's go, folks. And it's a dramatic moment, but it's a one-off choice, right? Uh, we can, we can go and follow him now to his promised land or we can stay and trust in our God for his promised land. Like, it's a very clear choice, a very dramatic choice. Um, you say, no, I'm going to stay here and trust my God until the day he takes me to be home with him. Gosh, that, like, that, that's a dramatic choice for you and your family. Let's not pretend otherwise. But it's, it's not a gradual one, so it's a very clear cut. You either go with the Assyrians or you stay behind. Here's our problem, friends. Our problem 
is that in our society, we are offered an alternative promised land to trust in all the time. And the decision isn't a clear-cut, one-off thing at all, which means Satan's got a lot of stuff to play with. He's got a lot of opportunity in our society. What's this alternative promised land that our society offers, you ask? It's that. I want the best education and opportunity for my kids. I want a nice house for my family. I want a career and I want to pursue life-work balance. I want quality holidays and leisure time. I want good health. I want to live with less stress. I want to live for this package. That's the fake promised land that our society offers us. And Satan uses that package so subtly. So subtly. This is not what life under Jesus is about. It's just not. Turn to Matthew 6, the other passage we had read. Um, I'll tell you the page. Um, It's worth turning there. Just listen to the words of Jesus on this topic. Uh, Page 971 in in, in my Bible. I'm very sorry to those with the large print Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. Oops, spilling water. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. It's so clear. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, in the promised land that God gives, that is, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Have a look at verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Brothers and sisters, Satan does not care how long it takes for him to destroy your faith. If he does it today, great. If it takes five, ten years, that's fine too, as long as you're willing to cooperate. As long as you're willing to cooperate. And as long as it happens. And so the journey gradually becomes something like pursuing the alternative promised land agenda of Australia, filling your head and therefore your heart with the kinds of desires for the lifestyle that society has, living the script that a society gives us to live by, and over time being changed by that. Have a look at this weird thing Jesus says in verse 22. It's very important. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. What's he talking about? What, what, what he's basically saying is that what you look at, what you spend your time looking at and pursuing, will be what your heart, head and mind are filled with. This will be what you're full of, what you look at all the time. If you pursue the alternative promised land of Australia, if that's where your time, talents and treasure are invested, well, your head, your eyes, your body, yourself, are going to be full of a false promised land offer from Satan. Friends, let me speak more specifically about our congregation. Uh, I'm probably going to upset some of you. I'm not specifically talking to any of you. Um, there'll be people within metres of you for whom this is equally relevant, all right? Uh, and I actually don't have anybody in mind that I'm targeting. Um, there is an enormous amount of anxiety in this room, friends. Uh, I'm, 
I have been struck lately that lots of us are really tired. We feel stretched. We feel like we're running on empty all the time. Some of you just have small children and that's just, that, that's part of the course. They'll grow up. I'm not talking about that. I'm sorry I don't have a better word for that. But I'm not saying we just feel tired. I'm saying a lot of us feel tired in a way that isn't okay. We feel like we're in desperate need of rest, help and encouragement, but we can't find those things in the ways we feel we need them. Perhaps your marriage is suffering and if you're honest, you, you know you just haven't spent the time, regular time attending to that relationship, but frankly... You're just ignoring it because it feels like another thing and you're too tired and it's just another thing to do. There can be lots of reasons for that, but here's a concern that I want you to think hard about today. I am concerned that part of the reason that we, are at be- uh, that we feel the way we do, many of us, I am concerned, is that we are at best flirting with accepting Satan's lie of how satisfying an alternate promised land Australia can be to what God has in store for us. I, I just see us flirting with it. I, I say it of love for you. I think we honestly believe we can pursue the lifestyle of Australia just like our neighbours and we believe that it won't affect our relationship with God. And when I read Jesus, the Lord Jesus, in verse 24, say no one can serve two masters, or either you will hate one and love the other, I think we actually don't believe Jesus when he says that no one can serve two masters. I think we implicitly, often, in our hearts say... I can give it a go. (laughs) Friends, if any of that resonates with you, I want you to consider carefully why. I'm not accusing you. Out of love for you, I'm asking you to consider it. Nothing on this screen is worth living for. In fact, everything on that screen you must not live for. Nothing on that screen is a life necessity. Everything on that screen you will lose anyway. And if you live for it, everything on that screen can and probably will, be used by Satan to attack your faith and draw you away from Jesus. It's worth thinking carefully about, isn't it? What about the last one, live with less stress? That one's a little different. Do you know Jesus' cure for worry? Let me share with you Jesus' cure for worry. Have less worries. Jesus' cure for worry is have less worries. You have lots of concerns, have less concerns. Look at verse 25. Be concerned, be worried about less things, is what he says. Chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Uh, Let's come down to verse 31. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the Australians, run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The cure to worry is having less worries. Stress and anxiety are massive problems in our society, massive problems in our society, because people live for this package and it will make you stressed. So Jesus tells us what our real necessities are. We need the promised land and God will provide the necessities we need on the way. You go, great, necessities. Jesus will provide my necessities on the way. Best education for my kids, nice house for my family. No, Jesus in the passage defines what our necessities are. Here's his necessities. 
that we need. We need the kingdom of God, and until we get there, what do we need? Food, drink, clothing. Those are necessities. And anything else is extra, and we should hold it loosely as a blessing from God, but something, if we live for it, which Satan will use to draw us away from God. It certainly mustn't be in the the box, stuff I care about, stuff I'll live for. So I just want to say, if, if you are struggling at the moment, if your life is hard and you don't know how to fix it, it could just be six bad, uh, bad six months for you, but it's worth considering whether the root of your problems is actually that you've invested in this world, in your house, your career, your lifestyle, in your kids' education and activities, as if knowing Jesus shouldn't change how we live. That's worth thinking about carefully. I'd love to talk to you more about that if that resonates with you. But as I say, uh, think it through... Satan is at work to draw us away from Jesus. Turn uh, back to the book of Isaiah, please. And I just want to finish off where the story goes. And it actually pulls together some of the stuff we've been talking about rather nicely. King Hezekiah turns to the prophet Isaiah for help. He actually is a good king. Um, he, He trusts in God. He's a model of how to respond in life's really hard spots. Trust in God. He takes his concerns before God. And he actually says in this situation, Lord God, this man is slandering your reputation. Please deal with him. He's basically praying the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. May God, may you hallow your name. But don't put up with people slandering you, God, is what he prays. He doesn't have an agenda that's about him. He has an agenda about God's reputation being vindicated, God's purposes coming about. And that's the reason God listened to him. Uh, We've got chapter 37, verse 21. And this is where uh, what uh, the prophet Isaiah says as a result of uh, this massive army at the gate of Jerusalem. Listen, it's just staggering what he says. He says, uh, verse 21, Then Isaiah, son of Amos, said a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you've prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word of the Lord that has spoken against him. Virgin daughter Zion, that's Jerusalem, despises and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses your head as you flee. Who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. God is going to keep his promises and end the siege. And what happened next is a little bit hard to explain unless you believe in God. You see, King Sennacherib's annals have a weird bit in them. Um, basically they go like this. I went to this place and I beat the snot out of these people and I conquered that place and I killed this king and I beat these people and I conquered this place and I conquered this place and I'm unstoppable and I'm awesome. And then I came to Jerusalem and you know what I did? I locked up Hezekiah in his little city um, and then he sent me some money and I went home. And you're going, you did what? You can, you, you've been knocking over cities far more uh, formidable than Jerusalem. You did what? And everybody's going, why did you do that? Oh, I just decided to, kind of, kind of is the way he presents it. It sounds like he's overcompensating. So historians have looked for other explanations. Uh, there's a modern guy from the University of Chicago, he reckons, oh, the Assyrian army had like cholera or something like that. You know how Napoleon's army was once taken by dysentery when they're trying to evade Russia, probably that kind of thing. But it still doesn't seem to fit the facts. People have to account for it, though, because the world-conquering army couldn't do it. Come to verse 36, and you'll see what really happened. This is God protecting his reputation 
and making sure that Israel survives. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, Nasroch, his sons, Adramalek and Sharazah, killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his king, his son, succeeded him as king. The empire of Assyria ended in a verse, two, what, three verses right there. The first superpower the world's ever seen because they opposed the living God and Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem, trusted the living God. You think, oh good, right? Jerusalem's safe? Well, no, they're not. Um, If we were doing the whole thing, what I'd say to you is chapter 36 to 39 are kind of the middle of the book of Isaiah. In the first half of the book, Assyria is the big problem. They get dealt with pretty convincingly by the end of chapter 37. Chapter 38 to 39 introduce the problem that's going to be the problem for the rest of the book of Isaiah. You see, the, the nation of uh, Israel have some nice friends, a nice little nation called Babylon. Um, Babylon are mates with Israel at this point. They've got no reason to fear each other. They, they kind of both hate Assyria so they can get on. And when Hezekiah was sick... Uh, and uh, then he got better because he prayed to God for help. Um, Babylon heard about it, and they sent an envoy to go and check how Hezekiah was doing. And Hezekiah was really happy about that, and he, he invited the Babylonian in and showed him the temple and the storehouses and the treasures of the kingdom and just everything. When Isaiah heard about what Hezekiah had done, he told him the prophetic significance of what had happened. That nation, Babylon, was the next world superpower that would replace Assyria, and they would return in some short years to take away everything that that man had seen and to bring it into Jerusalem. And so from here on in the book of Isaiah, when we come back to it later in our year, we're going to have an Israel that are looking forward to God saving them out of Babylon and ultimately saving them into his kingdom, as once they did uh, from Egypt in the Exodus. But that's where we leave our, um, our series on Isaiah at this point in the year. Here's what I want to say to you, friends. What is normal Christianity? What is normal Christianity? Normal Christianity is not living for the stuff our society cares about. In fact, those are the things that Satan will use to turn us aside from the faith, gradually over time, very subtly. Jesus says, pursue his kingdom with everything you got. And the Lord Jesus is faithful as we pursue his kingdom with everything we've got. We have a real promised land. The houses we buy... We need to hold loosely because I tell you what, they're junk. They're made of timber and gyprock, for crying out loud. They're junk. The promised land that the Lord God will give us is real and it's glorious and we should put all our hope, all our eggs in that basket. Let me pray for us as we uh, seek to do just that. Let me pray for discernment among us because these things are... (sighs) They need to be considered with considerable discernment. So let's ask God for that, uh, for wisdom. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to pray to you for wisdom and not just uh, worldly wisdom to think the way our society does and to think according to a script that's been handing to us by an Australian community that largely doesn't know you. We want to have a life script that is clear and is defined by the Lord Jesus. Uh, That isn't straightforward. And, And we struggle often to 
work out what we're really living for and when we've slid into uh, believing or flirting with believing the devil's lie and living for uh, the Australian lifestyle instead, please help us by your spirit to discern what's going on. Please help us if change is needed to change. (laughs) Please help us to deal with it decisively and move forward. Please give us wisdom and the will to do what needs to be done. And we just want to pray that you would make us uh, better disciples of Jesus uh, and that we would see moving forward uh, in coming days. And we ask it in his name. Amen.